Now President Trump has to answer questions about two phone calls. The lead starts right now. A new round of impeachment hearings just hours away after a top diplomat lays out new possible proof that President Trump cared more about getting to Joe Biden than helping Ukraine. Better late than never, just when you thought the field was shrinking, a new 2020 contender throws his hat into the ring. Deval Patrick joins us live this hour, and I'll ask why he thinks the race needs him now. And breaking news, yet another tragic school shooting. Two kids killed at school. The latest on the victims and the stories of terror and confusion from classmates. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. President Trump today, after claiming he did not watch a single minute of the impeachment hearings, is now attacking the first witnesses, tweeting, quote, Congressman Ratcliffe asked the two star witnesses, where is the impeachable event in that call? Both stared straight ahead with a blank look on their face, remained silent and were unable to answer the question. That would be the end of a case run by normal people, but not shifty, a reference to the chairman of the committee, Democrat Adam Schiff. And it's true that both witnesses initially remained silent before giving an answer to Congressman Ratcliffe's question, but it's something of a nonsensical argument because neither witness was there to advocate for impeachment or even to provide legal analysis. Take a listen. Are either of you here today to assert there was an impeachable offense in that call? Shout it out. Anyone? Mr. Ratcliffe, I would just like to say that I'm not here to do anything having to do with uh, to, to decide about impeachment. That is not what either of us are here to do. This is, this is your job. That is your job, Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, tells Congressman Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe, who at one point had been nominated to be director of national intelligence, though that offer was withdrawn by President Trump once it became clear that Ratcliffe would have a very difficult time getting through the Republican-controlled Senate. And I think from that question, the witnesses were obviously not going to answer We see potentially why. Taylor and Kent were at that hearing as fact witnesses to describe what they knew or what they don't know. By not answering the question whether or not the conduct was impeachable, Bill Taylor and George Kent were doing their job. But that was just one of the many distractions Trump allies tried to throw out. From the ranking Republican on the Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, using his time to try to hammer home what the former Trump Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert calls a debunked conspiracy theory that Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in the 2016 election. To various Republicans asking the witnesses whether they thought Hunter Biden was qualified to serve on the board of that Ukrainian company, which, again, they're not there to discuss. All the way back to Republicans storming the secure hearing room during the closed-door phase phase of this process, complaining of a secret process, even though, of course, Republican members on the three relevant committees, more than 40 of them, were fully able to participate in the questioning. This is all part of a very obvious effort to shift the conversation away from the essential question being debated. Did President Trump abuse his office when he and his aides attempted to ask the Ukrainian government to publicly announce investigations into the Bidens and Burisma and the 2016 election. And while the president's allies on the Hill are attempting to do anything other than find out the facts surrounding that essential question, as CNN's Alex Marquardt now reports, this will inevitably be a long couple weeks for the Trump White House. It was the bombshell revelation that deepens the president's role in the Ukraine saga, which is now threatening to get him impeached. The member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. 
Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for. Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, saying he'd just learned that a staff member witnessed a call in a restaurant between the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, and President Trump. Trump, according to that aide, had asked about investigations. And I, I take it the import of that is he cares more about that than he does about Ukraine. Yes, sir. Sondland, who donated a million dollars to the president's inauguration, was the one who insisted to Taylor there was no quid pro quo. But after Sondland's sworn testimony to the impeachment committees, he went back and reversed his position, admitting he told a top Ukrainian official resumption of U.S. aid would likely not occur until Ukraine provided the public anti-corruption statement that we had been discussing for many weeks. Sondland is now scheduled to testify in the open next week, Democrats saying he has a lot to answer for. Gordon Sondland was, was not truthful to the committee. It's pretty obvious. Senior aide to the president, Kellyanne Conway, arguing to Wolf Blitzer that what the staffer says he heard shouldn't matter. You're telling us what somebody else said, what somebody else overheard. But he'll be asked, how close were you to the phone? What, do you, have you ever heard the president's voice on a phone before? Were you in a restaurant? How noisy was it? Republicans have picked up that argument that the many officials who have testified that the Trump administration demanded investigations in return for military aid and a White House meeting have only heard it second or third hand, which Democrats scoff at. That is such a fraudulent proposition, and the the uh, and they know it, and that's why they're talking about process rather than the substance of what we have heard. Some of those who have heard directly from the president on Ukraine are refusing to answer questions. Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, who admitted to a quid pro quo before walking it back, and former National Security Advisor John Bolton have both rejected the Democrats' requests. And there will likely be more questions for them after Friday, when former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, testifies in an open hearing. She has said that she was told by a senior Ukrainian official to watch her back after it became clear that Rudy Giuliani and his associates were targeting her in what she called a concerted campaign. Also on Capitol Hill testifying tomorrow is that aide to Ambassador Bill Taylor who overheard the call with the president. His name is David Holmes. He'll be testifying, but behind closed doors. He does still work at the embassy in Kiev. And the big question is, why is this only being revealed now when this call allegedly happened back on July 26th? Another major question, Jake, how secure was that call, which was on a cell phone in a restaurant in that city which the Russians watch extremely closely. One expert telling CNN, it's crazy. Jake? Yeah, I think I know the answer to the question. It, it wasn't secure. <laughs> Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, let me start uh, with you, Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, Gordon Sondland set to testify publicly next week. Democrats are questioning whether or not he's capable of telling the truth, given that he testified once behind closed doors and had to amend his statement after Bill Taylor and others did, basically saying, oh, yeah, there was a quid pro quo, even though he didn't use the term quid pro quo. Take a listen to Jackie Spear, who's on the House Intelligence Committee. No, Gordon Sondland was, was not truthful to the committee. It's pretty obvious. Um, I think he shaves um, a lot of truth from his answers, and I think he's going to have to pay for it. I think he's going to have to really be careful next week. Mm. I, absolutely. And, and I think just the way, you know, hearings take on lives of their own, and I think um, he's only gotten more important because obviously one of the big Republican talking points has been no one... The first two witnesses, neither one of them had any interactions with the president. Well, Sondland did. And his testimony, therefore, I think, is, is even more important if 
you know, we, we can get the truth of what those interactions really were like. You know, demeanor matters. Contradiction to other, other witnesses matter. Cross-examination skills matter. I mean, let's see him testify in public. I think it's going to be really important. Do you think it is important, um, Jeffrey and I were discussing this yesterday, that uh, Democrats and Republicans get the first-hand witnesses in there, whether it's Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, or Rudy Giuliani, or Gordon Sondland, uh, or others? That, I mean, it does seem like there is a, a bit of a distance, a second-handness to a lot of this. You know, it would be really important uh, and, and critical if they were able to get Mick Mulvaney uh, and John Bolton. It seems like the Democrats have made uh, the decision that it's it's not worth going through a court and, and sort of tying things up in there. But yes, it, it would take it, months. It would take months, and they they want to kind of get this thing uh, wrapped up quickly. Sondland, of course, does have this firsthand knowledge, but it's sort of complicated because he has this history of, as Jackie Spears said, uh, shaving the truth. Uh, and so how reliable a witness is he going to be? But, uh, Congressman Rogers, you're the former uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Let me just ask you, you can't, not you, but Republicans can't have it both ways, it seems. It's a, I think it's a perfectly legitimate argument. Bill Taylor heard this. George Kent heard this, but this is all secondhand information, or most of it secondhand information, but then prevent Democrats and the country hearing from the people who have firsthand information, the, the Gordon Sondlands, but also the Mick Mulvaney's and the Rudy Giuliani's. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the president. It's not the Republicans in right. Congress that are. He, he, the but president of the White House. But they're not clamoring for it. No, and they should. And I'll tell you, I, I, uh, Bolton has been laying out some, some uh, clues that A, he wants to come and testify, and he may be able to juice up their story. If I were the Democrats, I would do everything in my power to get him to come before Congress. I, if they really want to do this correctly, he know, has firsthand knowledge of whatever deal that led him to call it a drug deal. Uh, I, as an investigator, I want to know everything around that conversation. Why did you say it? What did it mean? And the craziest thing to me is this notion that they're just going to attack these witnesses Nobody disputed the facts yesterday. Nothing. Nothing. They did not dispute the facts. So what they said is, well, you just don't know. You just don't know. So I think Sondland's testimony next week is really, really important. He, now, now he has to talk about it. He can't not talk about it. He can't claim the fifth. He's going to have to talk about it. Right. He may try to claim some presidential, uh, uh, you know, it, it, he may call some executive privilege into this. I doubt it. I don't think he's yeah. going to have the right to but, do it. But that's going to be very, but very how, how about... Um, John Bolton giving speeches for pay around the country on this subject, but he won't talk well, to the Congress. There, he's waiting for a judge to sort that and, out. And right? Can I just defend him here. for a minute? Yeah. He is an institutionalist. And I, I'm right or wrong, whatever he did. So he's believing that the White House has to make the determination. And he does that so that he can have a future role in, uh, in some future a government yeah. job. So he's, so, not, he's not waiting to give to to give speeches, though. No, yeah. I, well, that's I mean, what I'm saying. He's leaving clues that are yeah. pretty hefty. I, I want to ask, but I, this is the, the Democrats were smart about this. They would go and try yeah. to push this along and just say we're too busy to do so, it. I think that's a mistake. Jen, you know who was not super impressed with the hearings yesterday? And I'm not ta- not I'm not talking about the Republicans. Trump? No, no, no. Former Republican, <laughs> now independent Congressman Justin Amash. Mm-hmm who is theoretically a vote in favor of impeachment, I, I, I would presume. Mm-hmm. And he tweeted, quote, this is simple. Keep it simple. The White House released security assistance to Ukraine only after Congress started asking questions. Why? Considering that Bolton, Giuliani, Mulvaney and others may have pertinent firsthand testimony, why won't President Trump 
let them testify. And I believe what he's suggesting is that Democrats got too bogged down in the actual policy differences Mm -hmm. about whether security assistance should go to Ukraine and this and that, as opposed to just the message of this was corrupt, he held it up, and and, uh, let's bring in the people who know the answer. I mean, I agree with him that it should be kept simple, and I think some members did a better job at that than others. I think Adam Schiff tried in the beginning and at the end to kind of bring it back to the main point here, which is whether the president of the United States should be um, bribing other countries and holding back military assistance. He tried to bring it back there at the beginning and the end. Others got in the weeds. I do think there is an education of the American public component here that Justin Amash may not be factoring in, which is, why does it matter that we're giving assistance to Ukraine or not? It has to do with Russia. What about what the president of Ukraine says? Is it credible or not? And why not? And some of those questions, I think, should be answered at this stage in the process. So I agree with him. It should be kept simple. But there is a storytelling component of this. All right, everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about amid the impeachment probe. What President Trump showed Republican lawmakers during lunch this afternoon? Plus, it's the middle of November, but former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick just joined the 2020 race. We're going to talk to him live. Stay with us. And we're back with the politics lead tomorrow. A key new witness is going to testify behind closed doors of Congress. David Holmes, the official who overheard President Trump talking on the phone, the president allegedly asking how those investigations he wanted from Ukraine were coming along. That new revelation, as CNN's Caitlin Collins now reports for us, was not just a surprise to the public. It was also a stunner to White House officials. But they're still pushing ahead with their defense. I haven't watched for one minute because I've been... After maintaining President Trump didn't watch the nationally televised impeachment hearing closely, the White House's primary defense today has been that there was nothing new presented. There was nothing new yesterday. You're calling that evidence uh, respectfully. But that defense is undermined by the new revelation from the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine who tied the president directly to the pressure campaign. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone. Bill Taylor's aide heard Trump press his ambassador about the status of the investigations he wanted into the Bidens. And that aide is expected to testify behind closed doors tomorrow. Yet Republicans are holding firm in their defense. As the former attorney general tries to get his old Senate seat back in Alabama. He's a strong-willed person. Jeff Sessions is also trying to get back in his former boss's good graces. It looks like before the evidence comes in, uh, the votes are supposedly lined up and are going to be driven through to produce an impeachment. During the hearing, Trump was hosting Turkish President Erdogan at the White House. Erdogan says during the visit, he returned Trump's letter warning him not to be a tough guy, which he sent during the Turkish offensive into Syria last month. This letter was represented to Mr. President this afternoon. Erdogan also brought an iPad with him and at one point with Republican senators who have criticized him in the room played a video casting the Kurds in a negative light. A source calling it surreal and straight propaganda. Now, Jake, today the president showed Republican senators over lunch the transcript of his first call with the Ukrainian president, a transcript the White House said he was going to release today, but they have not done so so far. And one senator in the room telling CNN that it was about one page and did not make any mention of military aid. Though, Jake, that's what we were expecting based on the testimony of the National Security Council's Ukraine expert who said it was a happy call where people were high-fiving after because it was so positive. And that's why it stood in such stark contrast to the one that's at the center of this impeachment inquiry. 
Yeah. All right. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Uh, first of all, uh, Mike Rogers, former uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, when you hear that Gordon Sondland uh, sitting at a table in a restaurant in Kiev in Ukraine, Russia obviously very interested in Ukraine, just picks up his cell phone and calls President Trump and, and talks to him. They have a conversation where people can overhear President Trump talking. What is that? Do you have any concerns about that on an operational security kind of level? I have lots of concerns <laughs> about this. The very fact that he would have it in an open restaurant on something as sensitive as a conversation with another head of state, which is what they were talking about, yeah. uh, in any open setting uh, is worrisome. Number one, I hope the phone was secure. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that, that it was a secure phone. However, that still doesn't protect both sides of that conversation or the ambient uh, conversation that can get picked up in a whole bunch of different ways. And guess what? If you, in that place, by the way, Ukraine is, is crawling with Russian intelligence officers. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about the, the Ukraine will probably, there's, you know, in the, in the business they say there's no such thing as a friendly intelligence agency. So even your friends watch you. I can't imagine what the Russians were trying to do in these conversations. And, and they have such freedom of movement in Ukraine. Having any open conversation in a restaurant, bad. Having a conversation with the president of the United States in a restaurant, really bad. Having a conversation about the head of state uh, of the country of which you're in with the president of the United States, really, really, and really. And Saki, as a former communications director for the Obama <laughs> White House, what do you think? Could people, did people, were they able to just to call President Obama on his Blackberry on his cell phone. Did his did his did his buddies were they able to give him a ring? No, I mean first of all, there was a small number of people who even had his email address in the White House. Very senior people in the White House. But you would call through the sit room, or you'd have a scheduled call. Uh, those things certainly happen in any White House. You know, I think it's important to remember that Gordon Sondland is also not just a normal ambassador. He gave a million dollars to the inaugural committee. Right. And he has no diplomatic background. He has no diplomatic background. He's also somebody reportedly who wanted Trump to name him to a bigger position like secretary of state. Who knows what they've been talking about about 2020. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's true. So, you know, I, I don't know, but it's been reported. So, yeah. look, I think there's other components of what would have motivated Gordon Sondland to be so irresponsible here, including his lack of knowledge of how this actually works. Uh, okay. Nania, I want to uh, bit earlier. Uh, today, I spoke with former President Bill Clinton about the shooting in California because I, I, one of the things I wanted to ask him about is what would his message be to President Trump? Because President Trump says that he can't work with people on Capitol Hill on the matter of guns because they're in the middle of impeaching him. Uh, here's what Bill Clinton had to say. Look, you got hired to do a job. Is You don't get the days back you blow off. Every day is an opportunity to make something good happen. And I would say I've got lawyers and staff people handling this impeachment inquiry, and they should just have at it. Meanwhile, I'm going to work for the American people. Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't think... Uh, Donald Trump has the ability to compartmentalize in the way that uh, Bill Clinton obviously uh, had a, 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 an ability to do that. And you heard early on from this president, uh, there was a line in, in one of his State of the Union speeches where he said something like, uh, as long as there are investigations, there'll be no legislation. Yeah. It sort of rhymed uh, awkwardly. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's what they want to sort of paint the uh, Democrats as do-nothing Democrats. You hear that from this president all the time. Uh, but listen, he is obsessed with this uh, impeachment in the way that he was with the Mueller probe uh, as well. So I, I don't think he's going to be able to compartmentalize. I, I covered the uh, impeachment in 1998. And what was so striking is that you had a small group of people in the White House, like Paul Begala, Joe Lockhart, who was the press secretary, who dealt with impeachment like 24 hours a day. And the rest of the people had nothing to do with it. 
and they were just going going about their business. And if you remember, even in the president's famous when he fingered his, and yeah. he said, "I didn't, I don't uh, had, I didn't know that Miss Lewinsky." He said, "I need to go back to work for the American people." Yeah, it sounded people. very similar, right? And that was a phrase he used I, when he was talking to you. It, you know, and he was at seventy three percent in the polls during impeachment, in part because he was working on other things. Even though privately, I'm sure he was really obsessed with it, he, he did as much as he could to not Absolutely. be. All right. He just entered the 2020 race this morning. Why does he think he has a better chance than the other candidates to become the Democratic nominee? I'm going to talk to former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick live. You see him there. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead, there's a new Democratic contender running for president. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick made it official today, filing the paperwork to get on the ballot in New Hampshire in a last minute bid for the White House. And Governor Patrick joins me now. Thanks so much for joining us, Governor Patrick. Uh, so Jake Tapper, last minute. My goodness gracious. Last uh, minute ish. We don't vote for <laughs> ish. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Oh, in no. 2018, you said there wasn't room for you in the race, that you wouldn't be noticed because mm. you're not shrill. You're not sensational. You're not a celebrity. But now you're running. So what changed? Well, first of all, the same things that attracted me to think hard about and, and in fact, plan for a run in 2018 are present today, meaning uh, an, an appetite for solutions uh, equal to the size and uh, difficulty of our challenges is, is just in the most incredible uh, uh, occasion right now um, that I can think of in much of, my, in much of my life. I think the field is enormously talented. Mm -hmm. uh, and the emphasis on fixing broken systems is huge. But the way you actually get lasting change, in my experience, uh, whether it's in government or in business or in civil rights advocacy or, or so on, is bringing in people who may not agree with you but have to be a part of the conversation about how you get a lasting and meaningful uh, change. And then I think alongside that, we need a strategy, and I am presenting a strategy on how we grow the economy so that we're expanding out to the middle and the marginalized and not just up to the well-connected. Let me just ask you this uh, question about this, the technicalities of all this. When I say you're getting into the race at the last minute, you have missed the filing deadlines for two of the Super Tuesday states. Other, can right. other candidates right. have a, had a, nearly a year to raise money, win over voters, meet voters. What's your path to the nomination? How do you win it? You know, first I should say that, uh, that the reason I didn't get in, the penultimate reason I didn't get in uh, a year ago is because, as you may remember, my wife, Diane, was diagnosed with uh, uterine cancer just around this time and last God year. bless, she's okay. And, uh, yeah. Yes, she is, and it is a blessing indeed. Thank you. Um, she, uh, we, we celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary in May, and she is cancer-free. It was found early. She's, uh, uh, she uh, uh, went through the surgery uh, brilliantly, um, and, uh, and, and her forecast is really, really positive. And so, you know, that's the sort of thing that brings your, your feet right back to earth. Um, and it seemed to me that uh, no matter how tempting this moment in our uh, civic and political life is uh, for the kind of leadership that I wanted to offer, I had to focus there first. She's better. Um, we had a lot of conversation with an awful lot of people who have been encouraging me uh, to run. And I think some of the most profound and moving uh, and meaningful encouragement has come from people I don't know, people mm -hmm. that have just uh, found their way to me mm -hmm. and said, uh, you need to reconsider. And so it came to a point where I thought, you know, I really need to understand um, uh, not just the sense whether the, the, uh, the electorate 
is, uh, is undecided, and I think that's very much the case. But whether practically um, you can make it happen at, uh, at this point, and um, that decision we came to fairly, uh, uh, fairly quickly, but fairly recently, and we've been building a terrific team in short order, and we're going to be very, very competitive. I'm confident of that. So let me tell you one thing that you're going to be hit on if you haven't already figured it out. You have ties, deep ties, with big corporations. You just resigned from Bain Capital, which Democrats obviously pilloried Mitt Romney for having worked for in 2012. Uh, you were right. brought on board right. ACC Capital Holdings to help fix its subsidiary, AmeriQuest Mortgage Company, which was accused of predatory lending. Uh, you have right. said that you can't win, you don't think, if you don't allow a super PAC to be built, and this is a big debate going on in the Democratic primaries. How do you convince all these Democrats, liberals, progressives, that you're not part of the problem? Well, listen, I think that, uh, that I, you know, you know I'm a capitalist. Uh, I, I'm not a market fundamentalist. I don't think uh, private uh, markets in the private sector solves every problem that needs to be solved in our society right on time. And capitalism has a lot, particularly the way we have practiced it, uh, here in the United States for the last, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, has a whole lot to answer for. That's part of the work I have been doing, the work I did uh, at Texaco to fix a broken employment system and make it fair and transparent, similarly at Coca-Cola, uh, and now uh, in investing, uh, or uh, recently in investing, in companies that can deliver both a financial return and meaningful social or environmental uh, impact so that you can show you don't have to trade the one for the other. Um, I brought that same spirit of reform, big systematic reform, setting an example of what's possible uh, in my work as a lawyer, in my work uh, uh, in the governor's office in eight years. And I'm mm -hmm. proud of that. And I think that being able to understand all of those different sectors and actually have gotten your hands dirty solving problems in those different sectors and frankly all over the world is a unique contribution of, uh, of skills uh, to bring to bear on right. this very, very ambitious agenda that we have. But when you see the crowds for Senator Elizabeth Warren from your home Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the crowds for Bernie Sanders from neighboring Vermont, the energy in your party is not with people who are proud capitalists who are looking for practical, pragmatic solutions that bring in Republicans. They are for revolutionary change. That's where the grassroots of the Democratic Party is, right? And revolutionary change we shall have because we've been waiting for it for a long time. Frankly, the anxiety and even anger that uh, that folks are feeling in small towns and rural communities about the way the, the, the economy is kind of kicked them to the curb and moved on and the way opioids have come in to fill the void and the way their issues, our issues, become issues only at, uh, at campaign time. That's something I, that's very familiar to me um, from having grown up on the south side of Chicago. That's what we've been feeling there uh, and in communities like it for a long time. The opportunity that presents is not for some corporate person to solve the problem. That's not who I am, Jake, and you know that. Uh, that is about uh, seeing the opportunity to make big systematic change as a way to bring us back together. We have a president today, as you well know, uh, who seems to wake up every day looking for division and replacing that with our own better version of division is not the ultimate solution because we need to think beyond 
uh, uh, defeating President Trump, as critical as that that is, to how we create meaningful and lasting change. And I think the opportunity to do that through a campaign that is about everyone everywhere and not just big crowds in early voting uh, states and not saying one thing to this group over here and something else to that group over there so that nobody gets aroused, Mm -hmm. but that is about an ambitious agenda that engages people in it as their agenda, not mine, not my campaigns, but theirs. That's the way I've campaigned in the past. That's the way I've governed in the past. And that's the way I've tried to live my life. Well, Governor Deval Patrick, uh, welcome to the race. Congratulations. And most importantly, we're so glad that your wife is okay. Thanks so much. We'll see you out there on the campaign trail. Thank you so much, Jake. I appreciate that. Look forward. Take care. Okay, you too, sir. Imagine the millions you could make off of foreign governments if the president didn't own the hotel. A look at the sleek sales pitch the Trump org is making to unload their hotel in D.C. Stay with us. Tragic breaking news. Two teenagers were killed earlier today. Three other victims injured in a School shooting at a high school in California, and as CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, a teenage gunman opened fire on his 16th birthday. It was absolutely terrifying. At least two students dead, others injured. Active shooter at Saugus High School. All schools in vicinity are on lockdown. Around 7.30 a.m. at a high school about 30 miles northwest of Los Angeles, students were arriving, starting their days. When we heard the first gunshot, we thought it was not something serious, and then we heard two more. Detectives have reviewed the video at the scene, which clearly show the subject in the quad withdraw a handgun from his backpack, shoot and wound five people, and then shoot himself in the head. We heard the gunshots, and we just were like, let's go, like, let's run. We had to go underneath the pipeline, like, so we literally crawled underneath the pipeline. Six injured students were triaged, then rushed to local hospitals. Turns out... One of them was the shooter. I saw all kinds of kids running up the street, you know, screaming, crying, yelling. They were saying, no, can we go in your house? And there's like, I don't know, there must have been 20 of them went in my house. I want to make sure they were safe. Students have prepared for this, trained for just such a terrifying active shooter situation. We heard from our friends that who are still stuck in school, that they're hiding in closets. They're just trying to find anything. Yeah, they're texting us that they're scared to die and they're hiding in closets. And it's, it's very sad. This mom had just dropped off her 16-year-old son when the gunfire started. I was just panicked the whole entire morning until I heard from him again. And um, he said he was okay. The panic is over. The gunman no longer a threat to others. He is in grave condition in the hospital. The weapon that he used was recovered at the scene. It's a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol, which had no more rounds in it, had no more bullets in it. But the grief remains. So too the fear for those injured and the shock. We all know these shootings happen, but when it happens in your community? You won't let go of your daughter. No, I'm scared. It was very scary. We ran, we heard the one shot and then then four after and we just started running and just all I heard heard was all these kids running and just screaming and calling their parents and it was was very sad. Still no motive, still no ideology, but the shooter's girlfriend and mother have been taken in for questioning and we know his weapon was empty. So he shot five of his fellow students and saved the last round for himself. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. 
They didn't have school shootings like this when I was a child. The adults of this country are failing the children of this country. Coming up, what do you think of this? We're selling because we couldn't break the law by making money off of foreign governments. Well, that's the sales pitch being used to try to sell Trump's D.C. hotel. Stay with us. Our money lead now, the Trump Organization is now trying to sell the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, Jen Saki, I'll start with you. An investor brochure obtained by CNN contains this sales pitch. Tremendous upside potential exists for a new owner to fully capitalize on government-related business upon rebranding of the asset. Uh, the president has long insisted that he's lost money uh, because of the presidency. His family and his family are not cashing in. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I mean, this is the least surprising piece of news we've seen today, perhaps. Um, Obviously, he's been financially benefiting. We've seen that in the the many lines of business that his family members have had. So I guess they're sort of honestly selling it, I suppose. Although some of the reporting suggests that they haven't shown kind of what how much business they have taken in. So who knows what the actual facts are here? And Congressman, the president is both the seller and the boss of the GSA who actually owns the land, given that he's the president of the United States. Is there any other conflict of interest there? No, I'm kind of surprised that it took them this long to do this because the sheer beatings they took. And if there's a business entity, a licensing entity and a business entity, and if you're all getting beat up, nobody's happy and the money's probably not worth it. And if you look at it, I mean, some say tomato, I say tomato kind of thing. They were probably trying to follow the law. Remember, there's a lot of other business hands in that pot who are trying to follow the law. And I'm sure they came to this conclusion like this thing is a this is killing us. It's in a prime spot. Let's just get rid of it. And, you know, the Republican National Committee just announced that they're holding their winter meeting at the Trump Doral Resort, uh, which is, you know, that's a political party. So there's no government conflict right. of interest. But, boy, they're, they're making a lot of money. I got so many emails yeah. from Republican campaigns and Republican businesses pushing me to, to buy Donald Trump Jr.'s book. I mean, the family is getting yeah, they, they are. I money mean, this off of is, this you stuff. know, and, and Trump obviously is uh, pushing the hotels all the time, talking about the hotels, visiting uh, the hotels. Uh, he wanted to have that, uh, I guess, the, the G20 or the G7 or whatever uh, down at the Doral. Uh, got in trouble for that, so had to pull it out. But yeah, I mean, obviously, this winter meeting will be down there, and I'm sure he'll be pushing it uh, to, to all who will listen to Trump cocktails. Yeah. The grift never ends. <laughs> I mean, this has been his MO as a businessman, and um, I, I, Hillary Clinton ran lots of campaign ads talking about how he ripped off small contractors. I don't think any of this is a huge surprise, but he, as he often points out, he won the presidency. He did. With everybody knowing all this stuff. Coming up uh, from Russia with love. Apparently they have a lot to say about the impeachment hearings in Vladimir Putin's country. Stay with us. In our world, you've got to see how Russian state media is reacting to the impeachment inquiry here in the United States. CNN's Fred Pleiken filed this report from Moscow. The Kremlin is feasting on the impeachment inquiry in the U.S. State-run media clearly taking President Trump's side, even echoing talking points used by Republicans during the first hearing, trying to discredit testimony from America's top diplomat in Ukraine, Bill Taylor. You didn't listen on President Trump's call and President Lindsey's call? I did not. You've never talked with Chief of Staff Mulvaney? I never did. You never met the president? That's correct. 
And one of the main witnesses in this case turned out to be almost a stool pigeon. It came to light that all his information is third-hand. He never met Trump and spoke to Zelensky about everything except the main thing for everyone, the military aid. Ignoring other damning evidence Taylor laid out, the Russians rejoicing, believing President Trump has shown he cares about investigations into political rivals, but not Ukraine itself. You're being used without even asking for any permission. You know what the term for that is. All those important people in America are now talking what strange people you are and how you can be used. But Russian state media's support for President Trump goes even further. One news report even attempting to reveal the identity of the whistleblower whose complaint brought the controversy around the Trump-Zelensky call to light even as the president continues to claim there was nothing wrong with the call. The whistleblower gave a lot of very incorrect information, including my call with the president of Ukraine, which was a perfect call. The cozy relations with President Trump are paying off for Vladimir Putin. Perceived lack of support from the U.S. president has weakened Ukraine's leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, as his country continues to face a Russian-backed insurgency. Zelensky was recently all but forced to agree to a Russian-approved negotiating formula and ask for talks with Moscow, leading to protests against him in Kiev. And Zelensky was challenged by veterans on the front line who felt he was bowing to the Russians after losing America's support. I'm the president of this country. I'm 41 years old. I'm not a loser. As Ukraine's president struggles to navigate the fallout of President Trump's Ukraine moves, Kremlin-controlled media is in a feeding frenzy, hungrily awaiting the next impeachment hearings. So as you can see there, Kremlin-controlled media very much in a free feeding frenzy uh, there, Jake. One of the things we have to add is that the Kremlin itself actually didn't comment on all of this today. Vladimir Putin, of course, right now is in Brazil. But as you can see, the Kremlin-controlled media really doing the talking for Vladimir Putin and for the Kremlin. Essentially, their message is they believe that President Trump has dumped Ukraine. It's time for the Ukrainians to make a deal with the Russians, of course, only one that's favorable to Moscow, Jake. All right, Fred Plutkin in Moscow. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.